You're listening to Women in Revolt, a six-part mini-series about art, activism and the women's movement in the UK in the 1970s and 80s. I'm Lindsay Young. I'm a curator. And since 2017, I've been researching the art and artists that feature in Women in Revolt, an exhibition on between November 2023 and August 2025, starting at Tate Britain in London and then at the National Gallery of Scotland Modern in Edinburgh and lastly at the Whitworth in Manchester. Throughout my research for the show, I've been meeting artists, makers and activists and hearing about their experiences living through a time of extreme social, economic and political change. Exploring how their art and ideas forged a path and learning about the great debt women of my generation owe to them. In the second episode of our podcast, we'll hear about the origins of the Women's Art Library in the late 1970s. But first, we'll hear from women who made work earlier in the 1970s that commented on women's roles in the family and in the home. For many women, their thoughts on domesticity would be shaped by their mother's experiences. During the last war, you know, you had Rosie the Riveter. I think everybody probably remembers Rosie the Riveter. And there were brilliant posters with, you know, a woman on it with a muscly arm. And then immediately the ward finished, they got to find the jobs for the men again, you know, when they came back. So it completely changed to women in pennies with these wonderful feminine appliances in their kitchens, probably in America, you know, but completely changed as though you could fool women that easily. And it was almost like you did. Didn't fool my mother. I mean, my mother was furious, you know, because she'd been trained as a teacher and had to leave teaching once she got married because you weren't allowed to teach if you were married. You know, it had ruined her life, really, because she ended up having to be the person who looked after everybody, you know, and was always depressed. That was the artist Sue Richardson, who we heard from in the last episode. Sue's mother's experience was common among women of that generation. It's something that feminists were discussing internationally. The writer and activist Betty Friedan would write about it in her hugely influential book, The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963. It explored the deep unhappiness of American housewives who had given up on their education and careers to support their husbands and care for their families. The book was part of a wider questioning of the institutions of marriage and family. In the early 1970s in Britain, women would meet to discuss their experiences in consciousness-raising groups. The consciousness-raising groups were really important. Powerful. Because that's where we got our ideas from talking with other women. Mm. And it soon became apparent that one of the things that was most important, almost pressing for women, and it's universal, is domestic work. Mm. How women have to do everything. Um, Childcare, all the domestic work, as well as do work outside Mm. the home, which is why we started off, really. Um, That was one of our main themes right Mm. at the very beginning. Mm. That was Prue Stevenson, who we heard from in the last episode. Prue was part of Sea Red Women's Workshop, a poster collective that produced posters on all the big campaigns around domesticity in this period. For example, the women's liberation movement demands for access to free contraception and abortion, unlimited childcare and financial and legal independence. Sea Red posters also highlighted how girls were groomed for a life of domesticity. Here's Susie Mackey speaking about their 1977 poster, Right On Jane, with Anne Robinson, also from Sea Red. It's hand-drawn. In fact, it's traced from a Ladybird book, which, well, I grew up with, maybe Prue as well. These were children's books about brother and sister Peter and Jane. The poster is split into frames, each with a different picture, text and keyword. And the first three frames are as the book was, text-wise, picture-wise. 
and the keywords wise. So mm. they've got, for example, mm. first frame is, I am helping mommy to dust. And obviously that's a little girl. And the two keywords are dust, dust. And then I am helping to sweep the floor, sweep, sweep. And Peter helps daddy with the car. And Jane helps mommy get the tea. Good girl, says mommy to Jane. You are a good girl to help me like this. And the little keywords are good, good girl. And the only thing we changed was the last frame, which is in a way like a, a zoom in on the previous one, where Jane, the quizzical eyebrows, mm. and Jane thinks, stuff this. It's about time I got myself out of these sexist books and started giving girls an example of all the other things we can do. And right on, right on, Jane. Incredibly popular poster. It's a wonderful image. This child raising an eyebrow as she thinks about escaping out of the sexist book to chart her own course. So where did this idea come from? Julia, who was part of the collective, her daughter came home from primary school with a reading book. You know, had to read something in the, and it was one of those ladybird books. And we were horrified because we remembered them, but, you know, we didn't necessarily think they were still being used. Mm. And they're very realistic, hand-painted and very, very realistic paintings mm. in these books. And we wanted to do the opposite. So three primary colours, hand-drawn, to contrast with the professional painter's depiction of life for children at home. What did people make of it? It was just amazing, the reaction we got, because people liked it because it had humour. And you know, it's not necessarily a funny thing, sexism, but we really wanted our posters to be totally accessible. And we used humour in some of our posters, which quite often had a very good reaction. Okay, mm. It also seemed like a kind of riposte to the idea of humourless feminists, which was mm. still very prevalent oh, very well into the 80s, mm -hmm. I think. So the kind of idea that you kind of hated men and mm. you, you wanted to drag everything You'd down burn and, your be bra. Yeah. and be miserable and so mm. on. Mm. I think also it's quite interesting, there was a, quickly a stereotype of the feminist, wasn't there? With the boots... Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The hairy armpits, <laughs> the unshaved legs and the aggressive attitude to men. Yeah, yes. Yes. Which was just another stereotype, basically. So, While Sea Red were making posters that would serve as campaign tools, other artists were making work that responded to and reflected on their personal experience of motherhood, domesticity and family life. People would say to me when they found out I was pregnant, like, how are you, how are you going to manage? How are you going to manage, Shirley? So obviously I didn't look like good mother material. Um, I said, well, like everybody manages. People for <laughs> thousands of years have been having babies. I'll just manage, you know. <laughs> My name is Shirley Cameron. I'm uh, currently living in Sheffield, which I've been living here for quite a long time. And I'm... 78. In 1974, I was living in Lincolnshire. I'd always wanted to have children. The man I was with, Roland Miller, he already had two children from his previous marriage. I had a previous marriage as well at that point. And I thought, oh, that's the way I thought in those days. We're only allowed to re produce ourselves once so that means I can only have one child because <laughs> he's already got two so I was um, you were very pleased when I found out I was expecting twins which was only a week before I gave birth actually so and 
You know, they didn't have scans in those, in those days. <laughs> For Shirley, pregnancy wasn't a reason to pause her practice. I suppose my way of working then was to just use whatever situation I was in. And we were travelling to various festivals or different environments. So I'd, I'd just go there, look around and somehow have an idea. I've never been short of being able to have an idea about um, how you could do a piece of work here or there anywhere, really. But obviously, being pregnant, that is a huge thing in your life. So I did want to do a piece of work about that. She came up with the idea for rabbits. Essentially, it involved her dressing up as a pregnant bunny girl, performing in a kind of cage full of rabbits. It was a wildly original response to her pregnancy and impending motherhood. It is one of my favourite pieces of work, really, because... For a start, it took place at agricultural shows, quite a few. We toured it around and got grants from various arts associations in different parts of the country. So I'd been to agricultural shows. I think I'd done another piece of work there in the previous year. I guess I had an idea about being like an animal because animals are on display in agricultural shows so I styled myself as a pregnant bunny girl which is kind of animal and I guess what I think was good about it is it could work on different levels so I made myself a little like a cage but also slightly like a house and garden so there'd be animals in cages all along the road so I was kind of one of them. And I suppose the amusing thing to me and to some of the people watching it is that, of course, you wouldn't really get a pregnant bunny girl. You know, they're meant to be very sexy. And I guess pregnant isn't very sexy, really. Pregnant women as caged animals to be traded like cows. Women as bunny girls dressed in corsets to titillate men. Women not being regarded as sexual beings when they're pregnant. This was a performance loaded with feminist themes. Shirley presented the whole thing with great charm and wit and some very dark humour. So these agriculture shows last for about three days, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. You know, quite a few hours. And I could really adjust the mood of the piece by... I had rabbits in with me in this little cage house... And so I could read them Peter Rabbit stories, a bit like I was Mummy Rabbit. So, you know, the children could, and and adults could find that very sweet. Oh, there's Mummy Rabbit reading to her children. And of course, I had things to try to teach the rabbits in preparation for being a mother, how to dress properly like Peter Rabbit, how to you know, sit at the table and, and you know, use your knife and fork and, and so on. Not very successful teaching, of course. Or it could be a bit more sinister, really, that, you know, here's, after all, a woman in a cage. <laughs> I also had a little uh, gas ring from camping, camping gas ring in this house cage. And so 
I could tell the rabbits that I was about to um, chop them up and cook them. So I did do that. Also, you know those jelly moulds that are in the form of a rabbit? I had that and I'd have it out. Then the rabbits would eat it. So that's a bit sinister as well. So rabbits are eating jelly. They like jelly from a rabbit jelly mould. I also had ability to put on music so I could get up and dance. And again, that's a bit shocking. I noticed particularly for the teenage boys and so on, that there's this pregnant bunny girl really dancing. It's uh, a bit shocking. (laughs) It seems extraordinary that Shirley was performing feminist performance art at rural agricultural shows in the early 1970s, about as far removed as you can imagine from the refined world of contemporary art. But she's wonderfully matter-of-fact about this. Agricultural shows are mainly showing off animals and also things like tractors. And it's a good place to present your work because hundreds and perhaps thousands of people go to them. They're very popular. And also, because they're not really an art-going public, they've got quite an open mind, don't mind talking to you about what's going on, aren't frightened of it, really. Did she get any attention from the art press? No, I think you don't with things like that. And that's why you could say that that I'm a bit obscure as an artist. I mean, I don't like to admit it, but of course, here I am in Sheffield. I was working all through the times I was working. I was working mostly rather than promoting myself you know doing a little bit of promoting but you can't do everything can you You, ideally you'd need well lots of people supporting you a secretary a publicist (laughs) a minder I mean gosh there's been plenty of times that we've turned up somewhere with the children and there's no one to look after them and I've actually been in the cafe next to the performance space and said is there anyone that will look after my children and really you don't really like to do that and I haven't done it all that much but I certainly have done it because you know the organisers haven't been very helpful or whatever. Many women found it very difficult to continue with their art practice after having children as so much of the domestic labour fell to them very often in addition to their paid work. I'm Bobby Baker. Essentially, I'm an artist. I make work in a whole variety of different media. We'll hear about Bobby's experience after she had her first child later. But our story starts a few years before. In 1976, when she was just 25, Bobby created Edible Family in a Mobile Home. It featured a life-size family that she had baked and placed in several rooms of a house which she had decorated completely in icing. It was a wild, extravagant and staggeringly ambitious piece and she made it all by herself and it received no attention in the art press. So how did she come to make it? To understand that, we need to go back a few more years. Well, I grew up in Sidcup in a middle-class family, quite aspirational. When I discovered that word, I thought, that's on my parents' up. It was post-war, I was born in 1950. Bobby was the youngest of three children. When she was 15, her father died in a drowning accident. So where did that leave her mother? My mother was 
a very resentful housewife. After my dad died, she sort of took it out on me. She was distraught, you know, but she she was funny and she was interesting and we lived in this kind of rather bleak house and she would swear and batter around, but she did run the house well. So I sort of watch her with fascination in this awful scullery, cooking, swearing and screaming and then producing really nice meals. And it was probably the only time I really got affection was this very good food that she produced. And I do think quite early I thought this is, a, this is love. In sixth form, Bobby went to life drawing classes at Sigcup Art School in London and put together a portfolio that would earn her a place at St Martin's School of Art in central London. I was very happy at St Martin's to be in an environment where I just loved going, but I just realised quite quickly I didn't know what I wanted to do. And you were supposed to be an artist, which I think is still sometimes modelled in art school. I think it's ridiculous. I was like 17, you know, 18. I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew there was nothing I saw that represented me in my life. The models of art that were going on at that time in the building was the the home of the British School of Sculpture. So Caro, Anthony Caro was there and he used to lead groups of students around the corridors, master's students who'd come from abroad to study with him. It was very macho. Even if there was the odd young woman, they became, you know, they sort of performed being male. It was macho and butch and the sculptors were big and beefy and they had Greek names and what have you. And painting, which was much more anarchic in the painting school that I was in, but it was abstract expressionism, essentially. And Gillian Ayres was there, but I I never got taught by her. So there was one woman who was a painter, but I'm not an abstract... You know, I just felt all the time that somebody was going to tap me on the shoulder and say... you shouldn't be here. You're not an artist. While she was at St Martin's, Bobby was living in South London in a squad. It was there that she had a kind of epiphany. I just thought I had to make something. I don't know what they... I think it was somebody's birthday and I was selling baseball boots illegally. I used to buy them, dye them and sell them through private eye. Some other friends of mine had set up this little enterprise... Bobby decided to make a baseball boot cake. She bought some Madeira cake, cut it up and carved it into the shape of a baseball boot, icing it with butter icing. As I'd made this cake, it was on the side in the kitchen. It was about midnight or one in the morning. I was on my own. And I decided that it was a work of art of great significance. It definitely was that phrase, this is a work of art of great significance. And in that moment, I just do remember lying on the floor laughing. For ages, I was so delighted and thought, taking this cake into St Martin's to all these macho butch guys who made these gigantic metal girded pieces and saying, here you are, is a work of art to match yours. It It was a pivotal turning point and that was it. Bobby started making a lot of cakes and creating performances around them. I was quite euphoric with all the ideas. I used to make life size babies out of cake on meat platters. But I met some performance artists, and first of all, it was Keith Marie and then Shirley and Roland, Shirley Cameron and Roland, and they invited me to be part of a various events. 
Bobby came up with the idea for Edible Family in a Mobile Home in 1975. At that time, she was living in a prefab Acme studio in East London. These were prefabricated homes that had been put up after the war as short-term housing. Well, Edible Family, I'd moved into the prefab in Stepney and it was a site where the local residents were being moved out and they built a very big estate down in Wapping and I think the residents were offered housing there. So gradually they were moving out and Acme moved us in. And so I was in a family home. I had it for myself and my neighbours were a family with, you know, two or three children and I got to know them a bit, but there were other artists dotted around. I just was thinking about the family and, and I got a house, I got a home. It had a little back garden, a little front garden and, a, you know, one of those fences and a front door. I don't remember exactly how it span up, but I, I just came up with the idea, this title. I quite often think of the title, An Edible Family in a Mobile Home. And uh, I just decided I would make this life-size version of a family. Bobby completely transformed the inside of her prefab, creating detailed scenes in each room. There was a father made of fruitcake sat watching TV next to a baby made of coconut cake. The insides of the father were hollowed out and contained fabric birds dangling as if in a birdcage. There was a daughter made of meringues suspended above a bed. The son was made of Garibaldi biscuits cut into leaf shapes growing out of a bath filled with chocolate cake and icing. The mother was a dressmaker's dummy on wheels moving between rooms serving tea. The walls and ceiling were hung with carefully chosen newsprint that Bobby had decorated elaborately with icing. I opened it on, I think, uh, I think it was either Friday night or Saturday. So it was very busy that first weekend. And I think I closed it the following Friday. So it was open for a week. I sent adverts out a bit and people just turned up. And when they came, I met them and gave them a cup of tea. And they just sort of wandered around and ate cake. What was her thinking behind making it? What was so weird about it was that I had this absolute determination to make it. And obviously, you know, you look at it, it required a huge amount of labour and passion. And and it was very well, the contemporary word would be curated, you know, it was well pulled together and had great integrity as an idea. And yet, I couldn't have explained to you why I was doing it. My passion and my interest at the time was about this stuff is stuff that I think is important, what goes on in people's houses and everyday lives and feeding people. I know that I came back to that a lot and I'd written quite a lot about it in my sketchbooks. You know, quite theoretical sort of ideas. I'd written about Virginia Woolf's The Dinner Party and various sort of famous meals and There was a kind of vague theory around it, and yet I couldn't explain why I was doing that show then, except it was absolutely the thing I had to do. And it communicated something that I was completely caught up with, a set of ideas about family life very much. My mum came on the first day, and she was always a one to... She couldn't work, she didn't understand me. She was like, oh, mad, oh, mad, why are you doing this? Oh, God. But she was stunned because it was so beautiful. You know, it shimmered. It was like this absolutely exquisite view of family life. It was so beautiful. And by the end of the week, it was devastating. It was all broken and 
your crumbs and trodden in and slightly off butter icing. And I was shattered and and horrified, actually, how brutal it was, because it was a devastation of family life. And it was at that point, really stunningly, I realised I'd made my own family. And I had not realised that this sort of determination had been based on intuition. I didn't even probably know that word. And I was the baby. I think that's what shocked me the most. The baby is the one who vanishes, you know, gets eaten up because it's got no armature. The rest of the figures have some sort of framework left inside. And my lovely dad, you could see the birds inside, you know. And my mother was just untouched, you know, with fresh food every day, giving people cups of tea. So it was in hindsight, it it made sense of where I was at that age, coming out of my family of origin, as they say, thinking about what I would become. Edible Family got a lot of local press, which meant lots of people came along. But what about the art press? I sent one advert to Time Out, but I didn't know how to approach art magazines. And I I feel a bit tragic. I was so naively unconnected. But I remember Barbara Rice, who was really interested. She was a proper art critic. And she phoned me up and she said, I'm really sorry, I can't come because I'm going to the States. Who's going to write about it? And I went, oh, oh well, nobody really. <laughs> like, I think, oh, how naive. How naive if somebody had written about it. Just didn't know that's how it worked. I suppose it was my aim, truthfully. I did want it to be seen as a work of art, very much. But by that time, Bobby was under huge pressure to get it finished and ready for when people came. There was also an element of resignation in her not approaching art magazines. Really, I was being realistic in how sort of sneered at the work was in some quarters. You know, it was made of sugar. It was cake colours, you know, pale pastel colours and icing sugar. It was very female. It was ephemeral and it was feminine and domestic and not taken seriously, you know, the work that got all the attention was much more, still much more macho and anarchic. I think my work was anarchic and fascinating and had many ideas, but it wasn't a culture where that was seen like that. But still, I made it. If Edible Family was a representation of her family life growing up, Bobby would go on to make work that commented on her own adult role within the family she was creating. In her 1979 performance, Packed Lunch, she fed people a packed lunch while showing them slides of all of the labour that had gone into making it. At that time, she was living with the photographer, Andrew Whittock, and had taken on the role of shopping and cooking. It was commentary on, on what my role was, which was to feed people, and what I was interested in. You know, that whole power of feeding people, the importance of feeding people, and the oppression of feeding people you know, when it's not paid and you're not a professional cook. She explored this theme again in My Cooking Competes, which she performed at the Institute of Contemporary Art in London as part of the important feminist exhibition About Time in 1980. It involved her presenting nine different meals in front of magazine-style photographs of each, explaining how she made them and awarding herself rosettes. 
By that time, Bobby had had a baby and was finding it hard to combine parenting with making work. My whole life was about cooking and trying to cope with this baby. And what shocked me so deeply was that I had always thought that really everyday life and the care of children and the running of home was the foundation of a good society and healthy relationships and everything. And I'd seen my mother screaming in the kitchen and resenting it. And yet I just thought it was important. I thought it was important what she was doing. I felt it was of value. And what so terribly shocked me when Dora was born, almost instantly, I felt I lost my status. I was so angry. I was so angry that I'd meet people and they'd say, you know, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, I've got a baby. And it was like this sort of shudder. And I heard later from a couple of quite senior women saying, thank you for talking about having children because I never told anyone I had a child. They didn't. That's what it was like. You couldn't submit that you had a child because it was so taboo and it was so hard to be a woman artist anyway. Problem was, I just absolutely couldn't make any work after that. Couldn't work out how to practically, time-wise. I lost my sense of entitlement. And there was just virtually no childcare. While artists like Bobby Baker and Shirley Cameron struggled to balance their practice as artists with the demands of motherhood, other artists would choose not to have children. You know, I think children are 100% or otherwise don't have them. You know, and I just felt I was very driven. You know, I'm driven by my work. So I thought I'd probably end up resenting my time if they took it. And I thought, no, I can't deal with that. I've got thousands of young kids that are friends of mine. You know, I'm fine with it. I don't need to prove my womanhood by having a child. You know, I can enjoy other people's and have great fun. No, I I made the decision. My mother wasn't happy about that, I have to say. She said, who would look after you when you get old? But I said, no, it doesn't work like that. I said, I've got friends that are very, very close and I could depend on. I know I can I am G. Vaucher. I suppose I would describe myself as somebody very creative and always has been. G is someone who has ripped up the rule book in her life and in her work. Well, I suppose, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't interested in normal. You know, I never was. Since 1969, G has been living in Dial House, an anarcho-pacifist open house, a type of communal house where the door is always open and everyone is welcome. It's perhaps best known for being home to Crass, the anarcho-punk band and art collective that G was a part of in the 70s and 80s. Dial House is a 16th century farm cottage that G took over in 1967 with Penny Rambo. He would become the drummer in Crass. The two of them went to art school together and had been long-term collaborators. Yeah, we were partners at the time. We're still partners, but we're partners in crime, but not in sex. So it's kind of like we work, we work very well together, yeah, on different projects. Penny wanted to find a place which was open and everybody was welcome. So we went hunting. I mean, in those days, in the 60s, nobody wanted cottages in the country. You could take your pick. Everybody was moving to the cities. He really wanted, you know, people to understand this was a safe house. 
you could come here, you could talk about your problems, you could go on your way, hopefully inspired or hopefully comforted, you know, and it's still that. This was in the 1960s, when lots of people were experimenting with other ways of living outside of traditional family units. Penn had an idea that, you know, by setting this up, because the whole thing of communes was rising, cooperatives was rising, that there would be houses like this, safe houses up and down the country. There were two or three that opened up. But as far as I know, none of them lasted. We're still here, but... G moved into Dial House in 1969. I couldn't see anything illogical about it. It was expansive, it was creative, it was inclusive. It was everything that I kind of believed in, I suppose. It got a bit too much, though, when everything was being shared and they wanted to share my paintbrushes. I said, nope, I'm not sharing my paintbrushes. (laughs) Certainly not. (laughs) Underwear was being shared, everything. I said, but not my paintbrushes. (laughs) I stopped to that because, you know, you wear them into your own. And I'm left-handed, so, you know, there's kind of my brushes. They're mine. (laughs) So that was a kind of the first, I don't like the word my or mine. It's one of my least favourite words, but I had to make a stand on that because um, it was important. Was this way of living fundamentally different from G's domestic situation growing up? Well... You know, because I was brought up communally, always people coming into the house, always, you know, different. This is no different, really. I was born into a very happy family, a very poor family. There were three other children, three brothers, all older than me, and parents that were incredibly creative with nothing. All our toys were made by my father and all their clothes were made by my mother, you know, from old suits, who name it. I was born in the last year of the war, so things were not available. Of course, as children, you don't realise that you haven't got the latest thing from the shop because ours was such fun and so up-to-date that my dad used to make, you know. So, yeah, it was a very loving family. It's a very open house. The key was always on a string for anyone to come in. The whole street was full of people being moved out of other places, so and everybody had nothing. Yeah, it was a community. I mean, if you ran out of sugar, you could go and knock a few doors up and borrow some, you know, or be given some. A lot of the families had children, similar age, so we would play out in the streets. There were no cars in the street then, so you could play all day and not see a car. Everybody knew everybody, so people would keep an eye on each other. You know, that freedom was enormous. This very communal kind of home life was a far cry from the 1950s magazine images of middle-class housewives in homes with all the mock cons that Sue Richardson mentioned at the start of this episode. That was a version of family life that G would subvert in her unsettling domestic violence images. She made them when she was living in New York in the late 1970s. Here she is describing one of the images. The image is of... Two people in a very smart upper-class living room. they both got problems, as we can see. The woman is quite happy from the eyes downwards, but you can see she's losing it in her head. She's got... Her hair is flying everywhere. She's not good. The bloke here, he's got problems as well. <laughs> I don't know why. 
<laughs> I can't talk about my work. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the child, she's blotted out. The hand is right in front of her face. You can't see her. She doesn't exist because this is going on. She's holding up a chicken. Do you want this for dinner or you don't want this for dinner? <laughs> What's your problem? You know, and they've got all the attributes of a civilised society. They've got an art book on the table. They've got flowers. They've got chandelier. You know, it's got all the appearances of normalcy. You know, it's kind of, there's nothing wrong with normal. I have to say, I'm not against it. Come, Some people are very happy in that. I wouldn't be. You know, but they wouldn't be happy in the world that I live in. You know, you've got to respect that people choose. It's just just trying to understand, was it their choice? My pictures of domestic violence, there's nothing, nothing untoward going on, really. <laughs> I mean, nobody's being smashed to the ground. Nobody's, you know, it's just the setup. It's the mood. It's, there's something... Not right here. There's something nasty going on. There's something underhand, and it's all secret. Because what it is, it's behind people's doors. You can't see it. Even if you open the door, you wouldn't see it. You know, because that's the nature of the beast. It's very rare that you see the domestic violence. Very rare. She included her domestic violence images in issue two of a free publication she made called International Anthem. What did she think people reading it would make of these images? My work is never straight in your face you have to work at it I'm afraid you know it forces you it kicks you somewhere that you might not feel comfortable with but it's not to create discomfort for the sake of it it's create discomfort so you think why am I feeling uncomfortable here why am I you know and maybe it pushes you into realizing or thinking about something you haven't had the courage to go near maybe it's you in that picture Domestic violence was and remains a major concern for feminists. But G wasn't approaching the issue from a particularly feminist perspective. I'm seeing what can cause it. A naked light bulb hanging from the ceiling. The wrong colours on the wall, orange against mauve with blue. You know, it creates a really bad atmosphere, bad thinking. It's not peaceful. It's no calm. You know, living on the street with all this shit going by on the roads. It's not the actual domestic violence. It's what has led up to this. What is it that creates such disharmony? No peace. What has made people so extreme that they're hurting each other? You know it's not just in the living room, the domestic violence of the living room or the kitchen. You know it's something that's been brought from outside. The putting down of this bloke that work every day, the bullying of the kids, the blah, 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 blah. You know, on and on it goes. Nothing stands in isolation here. It's a capitalist society. You know, you're never going to get fairness with a capitalist society. I'm sorry. You know, they don't go together. You know, this is commodity. Buy, buy, buy. It's not without acknowledging that women are a secondary citizen in most countries, especially here. We're still fighting for our rights. We don't even get equal pay still, you know, for fuck's sake. You know, it goes on and on, doesn't it? But yet all of those issues are still there. But if you're an artist trying to illustrate somehow this disproportionate, aggressive, vulgar, uncreative world that some people have to live in, 
it's hard. It's a hard task, you know, to bring all that together. I mean, I like to think I manage it somehow, but that's only half the story, just touching the, you know, you know, other women have approached it in a different way, which is great. Everybody's approaching it different ways, and it's all part of trying to tell the story in its whole wholeness, really. And this is where alternatives to the nuclear family household come in. A lot of households don't have domestic violence. They are content in the way they live, even if they're not happy. But it, it's what it is. They accept it. You know, they go to work, they come back, they wonder why they only get two weeks holiday a year, you know, but they're kind of stuck somehow and can't see a way out. And especially now. Especially now with people with mortgages. Everyone's got a mortgage. You can't afford to stop. It's horrendous. Really horrendous situation that guess who put people into that situation? Thatcherism. You know, everyone has a right to own their own house. Who would disagree with that? But she put it in such a way that off they go, go and get the mortgage. Within a few years, the mortgage is worth more than the bloody house. So you lose your house. You lose a lot of lot else as well you know it's all buying into this crap they feed you there's other ways there's other ways of living you know that and you need to find it you know it's hard and nobody's saying this is easy it's hard in a different way it's hard in a more creative if you like a much more challenging way than being you know a lapdog to the banks that you owe the money to G published her domestic violence issue of International Anthem in New York in 1979. Meanwhile, in London, work had just begun starting up the Women Artists Slide Library, or what is now called the Women's Art Library, which you can visit at Goldsmiths University in South London. The library would become a space where women artists could deposit images of their work, knowing that however unstable or precarious their domestic lives were in a patriarchal society, there was a space that would safeguard and share their creative practice. The slide library grew out of a complete lack of information about women artists at a time when the whole environment was extremely challenging. I mean, I've met younger women who sort of yearn to have been part of the women's movement. The women's movement only happened because things were so bloody awful. It was so hard being female with that predatory culture which was denying your existence. It was really difficult. And especially if you'd kind of grown up not being undervalued by your parents. You know, if you hadn't had that undervaluing from home... To then meet it outside was really complicated and difficult. My name is Felicity Allen. I'm also known as Flick. I am an artist and I write and I make films and I paint. Flick studied English and fine art at Exeter University in the mid-1970s. I think I grew up being a feminist. My grandmother was a suffragist, so, you know, I had all that stuff in me. She arrived at Exeter having read feminist texts by French philosopher Simone de Beauvoir and Australian writer Germaine Greer and soon joined a local women's group. So then I turned into a fully forming, self-educating feminist 
And the women's group was a town women's group. So I was isolated from the other students. And the other students were not declaring themselves as feminist at all. And art schools in those days were very male-dominated and very, very patriarchal, as actually the universities were, but in a more subtle, less predatory way, or less overtly predatory way, I would say. I mean, there was a lot of rock star stuff going on in art schools. I mean, honestly, I would go to lectures where some old git would be showing pictures of Renoir nudes projected onto the screen and just be talking in this kind of really grisly way about how sexy the women were in these paintings. This was part of my art history lecturing Not all of the blokes were like that, but sometimes you couldn't tell. So you had to be, I had to be wary of all of them. And one of the lecturers who again was, I mean, he was, it turns out, was having sex with everybody, except for me, luckily. He was trying to be nice. And he said to me one day, why do you think it is, Flick, that there haven't ever been any women artists, whereas there have been you know, a few women writers. What do you think it is about art and writing? And I had to sort of rack my brains because I knew that there were current women artists because I was reading Spare Rib and Rosika Parker was writing reviews of of exhibitions that I longed to see. But I didn't know that there had been women artists. I think I knew that there'd been um, Barbara Hepworth. Probably I knew about one or two others but that was it. So I found it very difficult to answer his question. And we talked about practicalities and so on. After Exeter, Flick came to London. By chance, she reconnected with an old school friend, the artist-photographer Annie Wright. They'd heard about the Women Artists Collective and went along to a meeting, eager to join. But when they got there, they were told that it wasn't really functioning anymore. And then Jess said... That's Jess York, one of the members. Well, there is one thing you could do, which is um, we tried to get this slide library going and we haven't really done it. So we need someone who will take that on. So what is a slide library? In art schools, it was completely normal to have slide libraries. A slide was basically a bit of, I think it's positive film that had a mount that was either cardboard or plastic and it would slot into a projector, a special projector. Lecturers could then project the images onto screens to show students, like the nudes by French artist Renoir that Flick mentioned being shown at Exeter. Although slide libraries existed in art schools and were attached to some galleries, there were none in England that were devoted to women artists. I think there was already a slide library in New York of women's work. And so we knew about that and we thought, oh, we've got to have one too. Slides were also what artists used to share their work. Photocopies were black and white rubbish. There was no way you were going to photocopy your work. So what you would do is you would make slides. That was the only way to show people your work. So how did Flick and Annie get started? Somehow, someone sent me this table. I don't know how it arrived, but I got this table and a filing cabinet. So that was the beginning. And that had come from, I don't know who, who'd been storing it with the idea that the library would develop. But And I think there were about 10 
slides loose in this filing cabinet, and I think they came from the women who'd been involved. Flick set about taking photos to make her own slides to add to the collection. Part of what she was doing was making slides of work being produced and shown by contemporary women artists working at the time. I had a bike with no gears, and I would cycle around London with my tripod and my camera, which I'd bought in New York. And I bought myself a... I've still got it. It says professional on it, my tripod. So I went off carrying these things on my back and cycling off to different galleries, but also to, for instance, in those days, the Inner London Education Authority, which Thatcher got rid of, was a really brilliant resource for people trying to do alternative-type stuff. The Inner London Education Authority, or ILIA, had a resource centre in Islington that Flick could use to make slides of books. So it had a copy stand and a camera, and I could take books that I'd borrowed or bought and book a slot and go and take slides there. This was all rather illegal in terms of copyright, and the library would eventually have to weed out quite a lot of these slides, but it was important research, given the total absence of information about historical women artists. One of the key books that I got early on was a wonderful catalogue from America, which the National Gallery refused to take the exhibition here. It was offered to them here. It's a catalogue of women's work, 1550 to 1950. And basically it had what were then brilliant colour photographs on practically every page. And so I went and took photographs of all of them. And interestingly, how I eventually learned about art history throughout the ages was through this catalogue. The catalogue was essential for Flick's own research because at the time she was teaching adult education courses on women's art. But her motivation and need to find out about women artists went much deeper. I couldn't find anybody to identify with. I desperately needed women artists. It was essential for me. I had to read these books and these articles. I had to look at these pictures. I had to go to the exhibitions because I needed to know that I wasn't alone. I needed to be part of the conversation. And so there were these photos and, I mean, they started in 1550. It was uh, Sophonibus, but... Anguasola, I think, was probably the first one. And it went through, and obviously Gentileschi was in there and so on and so forth. All these people were in there. But through them, for instance, through reading about Gentileschi, I then found out about Caravaggio. I had to look him up. I didn't know anything about him. And all of these people, and then eventually with Anguasola, I'd read about Renaissance space, pictorial space, when I'd been at Exeter, and suddenly I was, you know, so at last art history was coming alive for me and I could find a way in. And I hadn't been able to find a way in to these stories that were all male. I hadn't got connected. By this time, Annie had left to do a postgraduate course in Maastricht in the Netherlands and Flick had been joined by Pauline Barry. So we'd gone from meeting in my flat 
to meeting in a room at the Women's Research and Resource Centre, which was a little collective that had set up in Clerkenwell. It was a building that was kind of given over to collectives like that. That was okay, but we couldn't use it as a place for people to come to, come and use the library. So then we moved from there. Pauline managed to get Jude Kelly, who was then running... uh, Battersea Art Centre, to give us this basically really pokey little room with, I don't think it had any natural light, it was under the staircase, but we were able to take the filing cabinet there but not the table, and we set up there, and by that time I'd been teaching my classes at Holloway, and I persuaded some of the students from the class to come and join the collective, so we had, you know, a rotor for people to come and invigilate. Many of the visitors were women artists coming with slides of their own work to add to the collection. This was something that had been very much debated early on. We had quite big discussions about what it was for, whether it should be open to anybody to put their stuff in or whether we should be selective and how were we going to manage that because there were one or two artists who were doing quite well like Mary Kelly and Susan Bailo were the ones that we knew of that were doing well and obviously we would like them to contribute but would they if there were a whole load of artists who hadn't been selected and were self-selecting and so on and so forth so as real anxieties I think I certainly internalized the very very strong anxieties that were commonly said about women's work at that time which was there aren't any women artists and then you'd follow up with well there might be women artists but there aren't any good women artists so over and over again from curators and from critics and from blokes you would hear that there weren't any good women artists so there was a very strong anxiety on the one hand we didn't want to be exclusive and on the other hand we were I was certainly worried about being dominated by people who didn't have good reputations and whose work didn't look good and so on but actually of course now if you go to the slide library that's precisely why it's so interesting because there are all these people in there who nobody's heard of I mean nobody you know in terms of Tate has heard of who took I mean one of the things that Althea Green and the the curator of of the library archive now has written so well about is the ways in which the stories are told through the slides, the stories of women's artists' conditions of labour, because the women are taking bad slides of their work. They're standing on double beds or a single bed, and they're looking down and taking a photograph, and you can see all the bed and maybe the clothes and the cat and everything else, as well as the painting. And then also she's noted the ways in which the labels or the, the script on the slide mount tells you all sorts of stuff and so on. So there are lots of stories that are kind of, in the word of today, granular, in a way that we didn't really think about at the time. Flick left the slide library in 1983, but it kept going and grew and grew under Pauline Barry and moved from Battersea Arts Centre to Fulham Palace, which we'll hear more about in a later episode. 
These days, it's called the Women's Art Library and is based at Goldsmiths University in London, where Althea Greenan looks after the collection. It's been an absolute goldmine for me in my research for the Women in Revolt show. But was there much interest from curators back in the early 1980s? You would occasionally get a curator coming, very rarely, I have to say, in those days. And there wasn't an awful lot to show them. And I can remember that feeling of shame of not having, not being good enough. Again, this question about can we be good artists kind of thing. But there was another issue affecting curators' interests in the collection. There weren't that many people who were curators who were out as feminists, basically. And there were a lot of women gallerists and curators who were wary of it, I would say. Feminism by 1980 was really, really uncool. And, I mean, I wouldn't say it had been that cool in the 70s either. Certainly my experience wasn't that it was very cool. And certainly by the 1980s, it was kind of over. It was seen as over. We'll hear more about what was going on in the 1980s in later episodes. In our next episode, we'll be hearing from women who worked in and around the independent music scene of the late 1970s and early 1980s. There was this feeling that this was a moment when women or young women, girls, could could get involved in bands in the same way that boys had always. So I wanted to encourage that. I suddenly could stand on my own two feet. I felt very empowered by it all this that was happening. It really kind of filled me up with an idea that I could put myself at the centre of my own life, which hadn't really occurred to me before. I never thought of it in terms of breaking any um, boundaries or anything like that. It was just something I wanted to do and it was important to me. My sexuality was important to me. Women's sexuality and how they're portrayed was important as well. The Women in Revolt podcast series was made possible by the generous support of Labena Hamid. It was conceived of by me, Lindsay Young, and it was produced by Rosie Oliver of Ticker Tape Productions, who researched, conducted and recorded all of the interviews. It features music from White Mice by the Medettes. Women in Revolt, Art and Activism in the UK, 1970 to 1990, is on at Tate Britain from the 8th of November 2023 to the 7th of April 2024 at National Galleries of Scotland Modern, Edinburgh, from 25th of May 2024 to the 26th of January 2025, and at the Whitworth University of Manchester from 7th of March to the 24th of August 2025. The exhibition is supported by the Women in Revolt Exhibition Supporters Circle, Tate International Council, Tate Patrons and Tate Members.